Let us hear God's word from Romans 2, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. From whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You know, when you um, encounter people in uh, society, maybe you go to the store, or maybe you watch things on TV and uh, you hear people talk and assess things in our culture and in society and so forth, you hear a lot about how people are just good people. And so, so so-and-so is helping with this charitable organization. Uh, They're a good person. Or they've given this amount of money, and so now their their name is on a plaque or on a piece of paper or something. Or, uh, of course, when we go to funerals and such, we regularly hear, well, so-and-so was a good person. They were a good father, or they were a good mother, or, you know, whatever it is. And there may be some truth to these things, to some degree. But Paul is confronting us with this thought, and he says, you know, we're actually not good people. And as I said a number of times here over these uh, weeks as we've looked at this section, uh, this is hard for us to swallow. In fact, one of the hardest things about believing in Jesus is admitting how sinful and wretched we are. We'd rather not do that. We'd rather think, well, there's something good about me, and that's why God chose me. Or, or I, I've done this, or I've not done that, and so God's happy with me. But Paul is saying, um, no, that, that's not the case. And so last time, we transitioned from Paul's words in chapter 1 about our sins of turning from God and the resulting sins that God gives us over to as punishment. To now here in chapter 2, where Paul's addressing those who think they're good people. It's one thing to be a sinner, to know it, to feel guilt, and yet sin anyway. It's actually a worse thing to be a sinner, but think you're not. Or at least not as bad as that other person. It's worse to be a moral person without Christ than to be an immoral person without Christ because we think we're okay we think somehow God is happy with us and so Paul began chapter 2 by declaring that moral and godly people have no excuses because they're just being a bunch of hypocrites they hold others to a standard of behavior and yet fail to abide by that very standard in their own lives because what do we do We give excuses for ourselves, but we criticize others for the very same things. 
we do not allow the same grace in others that we give to ourselves. And so as Paul continues his thought here now, as we come to verse 2, Paul is giving us, you might say, the main point of this chapter. And he says it several different times. And that is, God does everything according to truth. He is impartial. So notice how he says it here in verse 2. But we judge another... um, Sorry, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. All right. So we know that God judges according to truth. Now, let me first then address the, his first thought is that we know. So how do we know? How do we know that God judges impartially? How do we know that God is fair and does everything on truth? Well, <clears throat> Let's start by the things that God has made. Okay, going back to chapter 1, right? We know all these things about God because of what he has made. So how can we look at the things that he has made and know that God is impartial? Well, if you were to line up a bunch of people on the top of a building, okay, and some of them are really wealthy, some of them are poor, some of them are white, some of them are black, some of them are male, some of them are female, some maybe don't know what they are. Yeah, you line them all up and tell them to step off, and what's gravity going to do? Hey, they're all going to die, aren't they? Gravity doesn't show favoritism, and that's an indication that God doesn't either. Hey, the fact that everyone dies is an indication that God is impartial. So again, it doesn't matter if we're wealthy or not, doesn't matter if we're popular or not, doesn't matter if we're uh, powerful or not, hey, everybody's going to die. And this is an indication that God judges according to the truth. He do- judges impartially. Hey, <clears throat> just one other example here. Hey, it doesn't matter who you are, you need air to live. Hey, you can maybe go underwater for a little bit, but you need to take air with you. Hey. Do you see how just these simple things in everyday life make everybody equal? And so God is impartial. And we see that just from some of these things that he has made. We also see it because God has written his law on our hearts. Paul's going to elaborate on that in verses 14 and 15. But think of it this way. We all have this sense of fairness, don't we? Hey, when people say that's not fair, that's an indication that they know that God judges impartially. Hey, they may not recognize it, they may not admit it, but that's an indication of it. When justice is administered one way for one person and a different way for somebody else, we all know inherently that's not just. And that's not the way God set it up to be. When somebody cuts in line... Hey, at the store or whatever. We all know that's not fair. Hey, you need to wait your turn. Hey, when, when the pretty girl is pulled over for speeding and receives a warning, but the common-looking plain girl is issued a ticket, hey, we know that's not fair. That's not just. When one child is punished by a parent, but the other is not for the same behavior, we know that's favoritism. When the umpire calls a strike for one batter, but the ball... For the same pitch, for another, no one is surprised when dust starts covering home plate and people start shouting. 
We all have this sense of fairness about us. And that's because we are made in God's image. And we know that God is fair. He is just. And all that he does is according to truth. And so when Paul says, we know the judgment of God is according to truth, this is what he's talking about. Everybody knows this. Okay. And so to bring it back now into the context of his argument. We know that God not only punishes the obvious sinner who is known to be wicked, right? Chapter 1. But also the nice person who criticizes others in their heart. God is impartial. God justly punishes everyone. God holds everyone to the same standard, which ultimately is him. Okay? God is perfect, and we are held to that standard. We may fool others into thinking that we are nice, that we are good, that we are godly. Even though we hypocritically judge and criticize, we may fool others, we may fool ourselves, but God is not fooled. God knows the truth. God knows not only the outward things that everybody else knows, but he knows our private thoughts, our private words, our private actions. And so God's truth and God's standard do not change. They do not change based on good looks or favoritism or bribes or any other reason why we might rule unjustly. We, of course, alter the truth to make ourselves feel better and look superior to others. Right? Verse 1. But God doesn't do that. Verse 2. And so let's come then to verse 3. <clears throat> and do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? As we come here to verse 3 and to verse 4, Paul gives us two very pointed questions. Okay? And notice how he's still talking to this man. We see that in verse 1. We see it here again in verse 3. The pronouns are still the same. It is you singular, right? <clears throat> now, I didn't give you this term last time, but let me give it to you here now just briefly. Uh, Paul is doing what uh, is called a diatribe. A diatribe. Big fancy word here. But basically, Paul is speaking to some hypothetical person to help make his point. Now, it is quite likely that Paul is thinking of someone he's talked to out in the marketplace in Corinth or somebody he's talked to in the synagogue there in Corinth. Remember, he writes Romans in that location. And so it is likely that he has some people in mind. <clears throat> but Paul is speaking hypothetically in the sense that he wants everyone, all men, every man and woman to hear his words. And he especially wants... Every person who thinks they're pretty good to hear what he has to say. And so we saw that in verse 1. We see it here, the same language in this verse. <clears throat> All right, now, let's try to decipher his point. Okay? He says, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? If you are going to be critical of other people, how are you going to escape his judgment? Okay? Do you think you will not face the judgment even though you're a hypocrite? If you judge others for their sins and yet also sin, how are you going to avoid 
the God who judges fairly and impartially? This is the question. Now, at the the end of the verse, the pronouns repeated that you, you will escape. He's very direct here. How do you think you are going to be spared on the day of judgment? If you rebuke someone, (coughs) excuse me, for their sexual sins, and yet you lust after someone else or look longingly at another, why would God not punish you too? If you condemn someone for murder, and yet you tear into somebody else with hurtful words, how are you going to escape God's judgment? If you chastise a relative for getting into a fight at work, but you hold a grudge, and you have a cold shoulder or something to that effect, okay, If you always assume the worst in your relations with your family or regularly contradict what someone says or does, why do you think God won't judge you? If you look on those who think rabbit's feet actually do something to change your your luck, if you actually believe that a rally cap is going to help your team, if you really think Mother Nature controls the weather, Okay, And you condemn those who think those things, right? This is his point. As, and yet, you use your religious activities as tokens that somehow ensure God's favor for you. How are you being any different? Okay? We just did baptism. If you think that water is going to magically do something automatically, how are you any different than the person that has the rabbit's foot hanging from his mirror in his car? If you think, well, I've read my Bible today, so God's going to give me a good day. Or I've prayed or I've helped someone, and so he owes me a good checkup at the doctor. How are you any different from other people who have superstitions? Do you see the point? God is impartial. It doesn't matter if your sins are less severe than somebody else's. They're still sins. And God is going to judge you impartially. Let's come then to verse 4. His second question. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? All right. Um, I think the first question that faces us is simply this. How... Does anyone despise God's goodness? What is Paul saying? Well, whenever you have a question like this, right? What has Paul been saying? What's the context? What's he been saying all along here? Well, we've seen in chapter 1 that God abundantly gives all kinds of good things, right? You go back to to verses 19 to 20, right? He's made all things. We all know this. And, and, and yet, verse 21, we don't give thanks. But God does give all kinds of good things, right? <clears throat> but as we saw in chapter 1, it's not surprising that w- when we are given over to sexual sins, it's not surprising when we're given over to social sins because we regularly turn from God. Even our best activities fall short of his standards. And so God could give us 
over to a whole lot worse things, couldn't he? When God shows forbearance and long-suffering in our sin, and those two words here in Romans 2, verse 4, probably being used synonymously, when God is patient with us, when God is loving and good toward us by suspending judgment, by restraining his wrath, by mercifully not giving us as much as we deserve for our numerous sins, do you see how good God is? Right, we, we experience this on a daily basis, right? <clears throat> you know, we're speeding down the road and the cop pulls us over and he just gives us a warning. Or he gives us a less amount of a fee than really what we deserve. Okay, there's, there's a lesser judgment. Or maybe we get caught cheating on an exam or something and God, or excuse me, the, the teacher doesn't give us a zero but gives us an F instead or something like that. There are so many ways that we sin. There are so many more ways that we should be judged for that. God doesn't do that. Even for the unbeliever, right? I mean, the unbeliever doesn't deserve to have food to eat or clothes to wear or a place to live. And yet God gives these things to even the unbeliever. God gives them relationships and family and work and many good things. And even the unbeliever, some of them receive less consequences less sexual sins, less social sins than others, right? And certainly <coughs> less than they deserve just in general. And this is certainly true for the moral person, for the believer. God provides for us every day, often in more ways than an unbeliever. Okay? Today, obviously, the Cubers have a wonderful day. This is an incredible blessing, isn't it? God does so many good things. And we don't deserve any of them. Okay. When we have less conflict in a relationship than our neighbor does, okay, this is a good thing. Okay. So do you see what Paul is saying? Whether we're talking about eternal blessings or we're talking about temporal blessings, God is so good to us by not giving us as much as we deserve. And so when God is merciful then, when we experience many blessings, it's not because we're better than somebody else. And even if we are a little bit better than somebody else, it's just a little bit better. When you compare ourselves to God, we're not better at all. And so God shows us mercy and goodness every single day. Multiple, multiple, multiple times. And so again, since we deserve more sexual and social sins in our lives as punishment for turning away from him, when we have less of them, and yet we think it's because I'm better than, we are despising God's riches, blessings. We're despising his goodness because we're focusing on ourselves and how I'm better than 
rather than focusing on God and saying how merciful he is. And so again, Paul here is addressing that person who says, I'm good. I'm better. Yeah, I have my name on this list over here for how much money I've given to this charity. Okay. Or, or look at how good over here, you know, what, what I've done in this way. And Paul is saying, so what? You're still a wretched sinner. You still deserve judgment. And so chapter 1, in one sense, you might say, does not apply to us here in this room. But chapter 2 surely does. And Paul wants us to hear this message. If you think you're better because you chose Jesus, if you think you're better because you have not done these sins compared to others, Paul is saying, You're despising God's blessings. All the blessings that we receive should lead us to repentance, he says. When a good thing happens in our lives, we should say, Lord, I don't deserve this. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. Forgive me for my sins because they are such that I don't deserve any of these good things. This should be our response. When God meets our daily necessities, when he gives us a sound mind, when we have a loving family, a good job, nice neighbors, you name it, all these good riches should lead us to repentance as well as gratitude. But Paul's addressing the prideful person who criticizes others and thinks they're better than, and that's why God's happy with them. But really what it is, is presumption. So let's bring in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, obviously, Paul uses this image of storing things, and we, of course, do it in all kinds of ways. We put our treasures in banks or in our sheds or storage units or on our shelves. But Paul's here talking about storing up wrath for the day of judgment. God's daily wrath may be less for some people, but the final judgment will reveal God's wrath against everyone. The pride that we all have, the ways that we think we're better than others, is actually an indication that our heart is hard, that we are being unrepentant, and that we are wicked and deserve judgment. Now, Paul's words here are, you might say, a bit abstract. Let's put some meat on the bones here a little bit. Let's turn first to Matthew chapter 11. All right, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20, Jesus is speaking here. And then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying? Tyre and Sidon are the Romans one kind of people, right? Chorus and Bethsaida are the Romans two kind of people. They're better than, right? We're not as terrible as those people in Tyre. We're not as terrible as those people in, in uh, Sidon. We're better than. And yet they've rejected the Messiah. And so Jesus said, you are doing worse. Hey, God's goodness came to them in the person of Jesus Christ, and they rejected him. No, we don't need him. Hey, we're pretty good. God's happy with us. Now, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that if you, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now that's rather an amazing statement, isn't it? Isn't it? Because Sodom was destroyed because of their <coughs> sexual identity issues. <laughs> but God, uh, Jesus is saying that because you, Capernaum, have rejected the good things of God, and thought you didn't need a prophet in your own midst, you're going to be judged worse than even Sodom. Let's turn over to chapter 23 here in Matthew. <clears throat> Some more words of Jesus, Matthew 23, verse 25. <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, <clears throat> they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleansed the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, of course, when we hear of a Pharisee, we think, oh, those terrible religious leaders, right? But in the first century, the Pharisee was considered to be really the most godly person in Israel. They were seen to be the best, the ones who had God's favor more than anybody else. And yet Jesus is saying, all of your good things are just outward. How many times have you uh, opened up the dishwasher and a cup got turned over somehow? And it looks nice on the outside, but it's just a bunch of junk on the inside. Or we go out here to the graves, hey, and Eric keeps it nice and mowed, and people come and they have the nice tombstones and flowers and so forth. It looks good on the outside, but of course there's just decay six feet down. That's what Jesus is saying, and that's what Paul is saying. The person who thinks they're good, like the Pharisee, is filled with corruption. And if you don't recognize that in yourself, then that day of judgment is not going to be pleasant. You're despising God and his goodness. Let's turn now to Luke and read 
some passages here. First of all, Luke chapter 12. Hey, Luke chapter 12 and verse 16. Again, Jesus speaking, he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul will be required of you, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So it is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, to understand this parable, we need to remember that in the first century, the idea was if you were wealthy, that was a guarantee that God was happy with you. And so here's this man who has a harvest bigger than anything he's ever had. And he's going to build more places to store all of his stuff. And he's thinking, God's happy with me. Hey, I must be better than some other people because they didn't get as big of a harvest as I did. And Jesus says the same thing as Paul. No, that is not the, the message. You are trusting in yourself rather than the Lord. Let's turn then just here to chapter 13 and note verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now we don't know exactly what happened here, but obviously Pilate killed some Jews probably near the temple. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you see how Jesus is saying the exact same thing as Paul? Okay. Notice the good thing that happened. Okay? I wasn't standing near that tower. I wasn't any nearer near Pilate, right? God was good to me. I must be better than those people. Right? Do, you, do you see the logic here? Okay? When bad things happen to others and they don't happen to me, <clears throat> we're not to think, oh, God's happy with me. I'm somehow better. No, we should repent. Jesus says, just like Paul, because I deserve those blocks coming down and smashing me in the head, too. I deserve the swords from those soldiers to to cut my head off and stab me in the stomach. I deserve it, too, because of my sin. That should be our response. Let's turn also then to chapter 18. Here in Luke, chapter 18 and verse 9. Again, Jesus speaks, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, right? Exactly what Paul's talking about. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as a tax collector. Or we could say, all those people Paul's talking about in Romans 1. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Okay? I'm better than, he says. Verse 13. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so even if you are not like the extortioner, the unjust, and the adulterer, it's not because you are better than, but like the tax collector, like those terrible sinners, we are too, and we should repent. When God's daily wrath comes upon us, repent, turn to him. When God's goodness comes upon us, repent and turn to him. Right? You see what Paul is saying. You see what Jesus is saying. The good things of God should not lead us to pride. The good things of God should lead us to repentance, humility. Let me read one more place here. This is in Luke chapter 5. In Luke 5, and beginning in verse 1, it says, And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he, right, Jesus, stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. All right, that's the first thing. Now, secondly, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and lifted, uh, excuse me, filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Right? You see even about James and John. Do you, do you see Peter's response? That should be our response. When good things happen to us, we should repent. Yes, show gratitude, certainly. But Paul's point here is, let's repent. And so because of these words here in Romans 2, this is partly why we should apply chapter 1 to all of us, as I did, as we went through it. Because all are going to stand before God and face his judgment. The obviously wicked, but also the morally righteous. Because none of us meet God's standards. The self-righteous is Paul's focus here in chapter 2. Whether it's the Greek moralist or the righteous Jew or ourselves, there is no impartiality with God when it comes to our sin. There are no exceptions. And so the next time something good happens to you, 
Do not think, hey, I'm a good person. God's happy with me because of whatever I did. Think, Lord, I am such a wretched sinner. Thank you for giving me this good thing that I don't deserve. And that then would be a better response. Now again, Paul here is trying to lay the, the, the case before us that we're all wretched sinners. That's his point. We'll get to more things later. But this is what he wants us to engage with now. And so there are a few words here in this way. We'll pick up next time in verse 6. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we, um, <laughs> we hear these words and we thank you for them. And, and it's just so backwards from the way we like to think about ourselves. It's so backwards from the way that we so often approach life. And so, Lord, help us to think your thoughts. Help us not to be conditioned by our culture. Help us not to be conditioned by our, our old man and our sinful way of thinking. Help us not to just be critical of others and think that I'm this pretty good person. And help us not to just know this truth in our head to actually live it out. Lord, every one of us here could give off a huge list of the wonderful blessings that you give to us day by day. And we are thankful for them. But we also acknowledge that we deserve absolutely none of them. Because even our best deeds are filthy rags. And so again, Lord, we ask that you give us this attitude, an attitude that is so contrary to the way we want to think. Not that we just beat ourselves down, but so that we will actually turn to you in faith and repentance and thus be pleasing to you in that way. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercies in this way and that you would extend your kingdom among us here in these ways. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.